Zach with a quick editor's note. Um, this episode is super late. Uh, it's October now and the movie came out in July um, but this is our Barbenheimer episode and uh, we had a lot of fun making it so we still wanted to make sure we got it out there. Uh, we've been on a long hiatus but we should be back soon with um, a couple episodes you know on schedule including like a, a Killers of the Flower Moon episode um and uh some other things we talked about like more upcoming releases uh and you know we're gonna try and get back on schedule so if you're here thank you and please enjoy hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of spinning the reel i'm your host evan and i'm your host zach and with us is uh, a barbie girl in a barbie world special guest my aunt kim hello everyone hello and uh, in case you couldn't guess it by that intro, we are talking about Barbie today, but we're also talking about... Oppenheimer. Yes, it is the Barbenheimer episode of Spinning the Reel, hotly anticipated. Um, side note, Cody's not here again. I know. <laughs> he did We miss him Barbie. so much. Yeah, he did, he did see Barbie. Yeah, well, it's a bummer, but you know, as we always say, hopefully next week. Uh, so with that, you ready? Let's dive right in. All right, guys, we are going to start off with Barbie uh, and Kim. Since you're here with us, would you like to describe the plot of Barbie? No, actually, <laughs> I would not like to describe the plot of Barbie. I was not prepared to do that. Um, I'll just... I mean, in the, in the spirit of Barbie, female agency, yes. do you want, if you don't want to do it. Oh, you're so sweet. Okay, no, basically, in the story of Barbie, we have, it opens up in Barbie land with all the happy, shiny, glowy Barbies and their Barbie houses and everyone's happy. And suddenly things start to go awry. Suddenly... I don't know what happens first. Thoughts the of death. Thoughts of death. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I remember the part with the water spilling when she took a sip of her drink. Yep. And we find out from another character, Weird Barbie, that this sometimes happens when there's a rip in the time-space continuum, <laughs> and the human that's playing with the Barbie doll. It's something like happens yeah it's sad or something and so now barbie has to find the person who's playing with her in the real world and fix the problem that's dead on that's actually that's <laughs> that's exactly what happens yeah <laughs> and uh hijinks ensue yeah i think that's a great description of barbie great job uh that's, a, that's an a plus if i've ever heard one <laughs> yes yes indeed i think it's important to note that the barbies are all under the impression that they have fixed everything in the real world that their existence as a toy has granted women equality in the real world and this right. is the operating assumption right yeah we all are. all problems of feminism and inequality have been solved by barbie by barbie <laughs> yeah. yes an inspiration so, um, how does Barbie end up crossing over from Barbie land and to the real world? Do you remember? 
Yeah, do you remember the order of operations, Zach? You just saw this movie again for the third time this weekend. Yeah, uh, so it's sports car, and then um, it goes sports car. I think it goes boat, then rocket ship, then snowmobile. No, camper, then snowmobile, and then rollerblades is like the last one to to get back to, yeah, to so Venice Beach. Yeah, they have to Beach. rollerblade through Venice Beach. <laughs> but we are forgetting of a big part of this movie and that is ken yes the kens are also in this movie zach do you want to explain the plight of ken in the barbie movie uh (laughs) (laughs) well he's just ken um and he you know is kind of just an afterthought in barbie land uh him and his his fellow kens um of course uh, ken is played by ryan gosling and simu lu and uh, Kingsley Benadir, um, and I can't remember the other actors who also play Ken, but there's several Kens as well as several Barbies. Um, and yeah, Ken is basically an afterthought. Barbie Land is all about Barbies, and she's not really interested in Ken. He doesn't have a good day unless Barbie looks at him. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, he only yeah. exists through the gaze of Barbie, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think the narration line is literally like, every day is a great day for Barbie, and Ken only has a great day if Barbie looks at him. Yeah, that's right. And Ryan Gosling plays that hilariously. Uh, you know, anytime she says anything to him, he does these, like, ridiculous little giddy celebrations. Yeah. Like, <laughs> insane. <laughs> oh, man. It's such a, a, a fun performance and a really a great script, honestly. <laughs> yeah, really, really well done. So why don't we start off with you, Ann Kim. What did you think of Barbie? I actually thought that Margot Robbie did a great job portraying an iconic doll, which couldn't really be easy to do when you think about it. I mean, Barbie, although she has had a billion jobs, she is kind of one-dimensional, but Margot Robbie did such a great job of making her believable and also kind of just portraying that shock from being in Barbie land where she's pretty much the queen and looked up to and respected um changing to the real world where now she's like an object of men's gazes and all sorts of things that she didn't expect so yeah barbie i thought margot robbie did a great job yeah i agree with that i think one of the more fun scenes early on is they get to the real world they're rollerblading through venice beach and she's like you know it's time to find some like girl power here Let's go to this construction site. <laughs> and then it's all a construction these... site at lunch. <laughs> and they get into all these misadventures, and it ends up being a very funny scene with kind of what is said at the construction scene. But that's kind of what this movie is, is it's a lot of subversion of what you might expect, like taking Barbie's whole ethos, the whole idea behind this doll, and deconstructing it into kind of how ridiculous, like, the idea of Barbie is juxtaposed with what the real world uh, happenings yeah. are, and uh, it's they, they find a lot of humor in it, I will say. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, this is an excellent film. Um, it's so good. Uh, a lot of fun, and then, I, as I mentioned, like just really good writing, I think, uh, at, at every stage. I um, don't know if I agree with that 100%, but go on, go on. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it definitely it leaves an impression, and it's it's so over the top. But you know, that's used well here. It's not like uh, 
what's the word like it's not obnoxious but it's more like presented like in a silly way but the way that the way that they're what they're saying is actually very serious and like true to life and pokes fun at a lot of at a lot of things uh about how we see ourselves and you know gender differences and just power imbalances and 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 patriarchy (laughs) really yeah, I think I left the theater saying to myself, you know, this wasn't a great movie for me, but it was an important movie. And I think that, yeah, it, it has been criticized as being like over the top political in some ways, very woke. But I do think this is a, an important film for people, audiences to be seeing this day and age because things are changing quickly. And this movie represents that. Yeah, it definitely does, and it gets into that, and I think we should have a discussion about how woke Barbie is, maybe not in those <laughs> terms, because it's it's been part of the conversation, uh, but yeah, I do think that part of the over-the-topness, part of the ridiculousness of it, is it's satirizing some of these like very real things, mm-hmm. and so when you do have, I guess, spoilers uh, here for anyone that didn't see Barbie opening weekend, which seems like not a lot of people didn't see Barbie opening weekend. It's on track to make like $175 million this weekend alone. Um, but like when the when Ken comes back and introduces Barbie World to the patriarchy, he thinks it's about horses. And he thinks like <laughs> that that's what makes, you know, men more manly is having a what would casa dojo houses (laughs) mojo dojo casa house exactly and so it's like this whole concept of not only is is patriarchy and uh and you know attacking feminism so prevalent in the real world in real life but like the way that it's gone about if you zoom out it's pretty ridiculous some of the concepts and i think that that's part of why this movie is so over the top in barbie land yeah, I think it's using a, a, an extreme lack of subtlety to really hang a lantern on some of the stuff that we see every day but don't really talk about or or uh, consider because we accept it as normal. There's a couple of things that I think about saying that. and There's a, a moment where um, Ken is, is realizing that he finally has like respect as a man just because he's in the real world, and he goes to a... A, a, just a random company is like, hi, I'd like a high paying job, please. And then he's like, okay, well, first you need like a degree and, and all this stuff. And he's like, well, isn't being a man enough? And, and then the guy's like, well, no, not really these days. Like it's kind of, it, things are trending differently. And he's like, well, you guys aren't doing patriarchy right at all. And he's like, no, we're just better at hiding it. And like, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the part where he's talking about the horses being like a man extender, he says like, what I realized is, you know, at first I thought patriarchy was about horses, but actually horses are just men extenders and everything in the real world serves to extend the presence of men. Like, and, and then just, there's so many lines like that and, and things that are really, really speak truth to power about our, our society and, and how it's arranged. There were moments of extremely good writing where I was like, wow. Yeah. Like like where? Like what he just said, the man extenders Mm -hmm. is the horses. But then there were also examples of such bad writing that there were parts in the movie where I swear to God I wanted to get up and like like go to the concession stand because I was like I can't take this much more yeah what's what's the line that made you grow oh, okay they're in the very beginning okay so Ken his job is, is beach, beach. Oh, I love it 
right? And that was cool, but like there was one scene where they were like, I'm going to beat you off. Okay, oh, yeah. I can beat better than you. Oh, we're going to beat you both. I, I don't know. And it yeah, just got yeah. to be really stupid, and I was embarrassed for the... I was embarrassed for the screenwriter. Like I can see that. So. I mean, it's definitely it, that joke isn't gonna land for everybody. So cheesy. Yeah. It was also in all the trailers too. So yeah. if you saw any trailer for Barbie, like you've seen that joke a dozen times already. <laughs> um, yeah. The, the beach stuff was so funny though when they get in the car and uh, he's like, "I'm coming with you." You know, yeah. <laughs> what if yeah. you find a beach and there's You're a situation where you yeah. need an expert? <laughs> so good. Yeah. I mean, it just captures like how stupid. Ken is and like uh, just buffoonish. It's uh, it's really incredible. Uh, so I'll pose it to both of you: Is Barbie too woke for today? Okay, I'll tell you what I thought about this issue, and that's you're gonna have to edit all this stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for me, what I loved was the colors. The whole movie is just a delight for this for your eyes. So much color, and not just with the backdrops and the props and the things, but with the people. You see Barbies of every shape, every size, every color. Um, people with disabilities, people like just every every thing is is represented, and I think that was refreshing and cool. And maybe that's what some people have a problem with. That maybe they felt that was too much. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's possible that that's also part of, I mean, that seems to be a problem for a certain subsect of people anytime it gets brought up anyway. Um, and I do think it's kind of interesting to put it that way in that, you know, Mattel, which is the subject of a lot of the satirization in their own movie that's come out, which kind of makes you, I don't know, it's good and it's bad because on one hand, it's like, how did they get away with, you know, really jabbing Mattel so many times? Not that any of it's too, like, aggressive but you know also at the same time it's they're selling dolls and selling branded barbie merchandise so that's all part of it too but mattel has always held out that like you know there's a barbie for everyone and barbie is inclusive and there's all these things and maybe that's more true now than it was you know at the inception of this product line but this movie definitely seems more inclusive than the product line has ever been well it's interesting as i was studying on barbie history um, the creator of Barbie actually um, was married to the owner of Mattel. Yeah, so, you know, it's not like Mattel's just, you know, I don't know. Barbie yeah. is Mattel, and Mattel is Barbie. Right. That's is that going to be on the quiz? No. I mean, no. <laughs> yeah, we, we are going to have a little history lesson coming up. <laughs> but to speak to both your points, I, yeah, certainly mere representation is – uh, in and of itself, like angering to s some people, which is just it's that's weirdo behavior. But um, the other thing too is they do talk about the effect that Barbie has had on like how it promotes consumerism and all that stuff. And uh, a lot of the Mattel like executives are concerned with with uh, you know the bottom line, and that's it, right? Oh, that's going to make a lot of money. Okay, let's rubber stamp that. Like, yeah, let's we'll launch that one. Uh, and this movie does take pretty square aim at that and, and makes fun of it, pokes fun of it, but also is about a product Barbie. Like there's no way this movie isn't going to increase Barbie sales. Right. Um, and then also uh, something you and I both noticed and Kim in, in the, in our initial viewing was that a very clear Chevy commercial <laughs> right in the middle of the movie. There's a, there's a big car chase 
uh, where Barbie's trying to escape the clutches of Mattel. Chevy's actually using that footage in their commercials. <laughs> Legitimately, they they have a commercial with that scene from the movie. Yeah, yeah but like blatant. literally the way the even just this down to the cinematography, like the the Chevy logo is front and center on every single vehicle. Like there's not a, another vehicle present at all. That's like their new hybrid or something. And then even the black, you know, nameless vans are, that are chasing them are also Chevy. It's just it's yeah. very in your face and something I, that took me out of the movie. Me too. Right away, just watching that. Um, but honestly, I think this movie goes way beyond just representation of, you know, uh, Barbies of color or, or, uh, sexual orientation, size, age. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All of that stuff. But it goes, it goes much beyond that. And I do think that, you know, in addressing the, the patriarchy, there's something that Barbie says, like by, by discussing the cognitive dissonance, it, it, it's, that's required to be a woman in society. You like rob it of its power. And that's like, and then, you know, the definitions of patriarchy that they give, um, I think it's like Ken who says it or something, you know, about the, the, everything is meant to extend and celebrate the presence of men. Like those are real ideas and, and ring true. Uh, but there's a wonderful gambit in this movie at the, that comes towards the end uh, where after everyone's kind of reached their final resolution and they're talking about, you know, Barbie's ending and stuff, uh, the the narrator Helen Mirren says, "Oh, and the Kens go on to have as much power in Barbie Land as women do in the real world." And I love that line because it's literally like, if you get mad at this movie for saying like Kens are made to be second class citizens or the movie's anti men, that line right there literally is like, okay, so you accept that that's how women are in the real world because if you believe that about the Kens, then that's that's literally what we're saying is like the Kens are equivalent to to how we treat women out here and so if you're admitting that they have the short end of the fucking stick like then you're that's what you're doing is that's that's an illicit admission of you know the patriarchy that we accept in our everyday lives right and i think that's one of the funniest things about these people that are going to the movies and like writing down the number of times that the word patriarchy is said like people are literally complaining uh about that and if you're doing that, you're literally just telling on yourself. Like you are just <laughs> going on the internet and saying that like you did not understand that this movie is about how you are the problem, you know? And that's why I don't think that this is actually a kids movie. I mean, it is PG-13, which for me feels correct. But I know there's a lot of younger girls and boys out there that are wishing that they could see this movie and I don't think it it's I don't think that the message is really geared toward young audiences so i don't know i kind of feel weird about that what do you guys think yeah i think it definitely earns its pg-13 rating i would say uh i I don't know i think the themes aren't this is one of the things that i noticed in the movie too is that um like the great speech that america ferrera's character gives towards the end great fucking speech is is a fantastic speech but it is laying out exactly what the movie is about directly mm-hmm. so i don't know that there's too much risk unless you're willfully ignorant of this movie going over your head in terms of what it's trying to do but i do think that there are a lot of sequences that really are not meant for kids either i just don't think a kid even thinks on that level you know a kid is just playing and wanting to you know right. play they're not really thinking about how women are viewed in the world or you know what that's going to be like when they're older yeah, I think that's that's a fair point too. Yeah, I, d- I definitely think that 
it's not it's not stated how uh, exactly how old Sasha is in the movie, but you know she's in middle school, right? At, like that, she calls herself a tween. So like, I think that's like right there, like you know, as they're just emerging into the world, as understanding themselves as women, and you know, be, being interested in in uh, boys or girls or whatever, it's developing like that's right. That's right where this is aimed at. So I think younger than that, probably not going to be very entertained, or even if they are, by just the wonderful production design not going to walk away with really what the movie's talking about unless you know parents yeah because by the time they're older maybe all this stuff will be fixed <laughs> one <laughs> thank would hope. you barbie one would hope. <laughs> that's right if the barbies have anything to say about it <laughs> so what can we do to make this movie like what where does this fall short for you so i i know aunt kim you had uh a little more hesitancy towards it as an overall piece of entertainment than maybe Zach and I did but wh- where do you think this movie could have improved uh, on what it was trying to do <clears throat> yeah just for me a lot of the camp was excessive like a little bit was fine fun but some they just really crossed the line so many times where I was just like rolling my eyes in my seat going Ugh, ugh. but then it saved itself so many other times where I was like oh my god this movie is amazing like what you talked about America Furry at one point um who is she yelling at is she yelling at Barbie yeah so she this is when um Ken has taken over Barbie land and Barbie's giving it up so they are gonna leave but they come back and she's at weird Barbie's house and She's talking about how she's not pretty enough and isn't good enough for all this stuff. And then she's like, like, you're a, the most beautiful doll I've ever seen. Like, it's it's hard to be a woman. She goes, you know, on this wonderful monologue. Uh, but she's basically saying to Barbie, like, you know, it's so it's impossible to be a woman. And if you're just if that is also true for a doll who's just representing women, then like that was it. What the fuck? <laughs> there was a point in the theater where I almost stood up and said, yeah, but I didn't want to be that person. But yeah, so. I think you could have been that person. It would have been uh, the crowd would have been receptive uh, to that kind of thing, especially. I mean, we we saw everyone was dressed in pink. Everyone was really amped for this thing. I think I like. I agree that it was very campy in certain moments, and then as it got more serious, it kind of you know took a more serious approach to the to the movie. I do think that the tone shifted a lot. You know, there are. A lot of moments earlier that are almost like a musical, like dance sequences, things like that. Yeah. You kind of get one later on when the Kens are doing their battle, and which is a very fun sequence as well, um, which is, I, I think, parodying Grease a little bit. Um, and they didn't really stay consistent with that. I kind of wish that there was either more of that or less of it one way or the other, you know, kind of give us more consistency in terms of the approach to it. But I understand if you're going into the real world and you're trying to, you know, create contrast between those two things but that that was where i would have maybe made an adjustment as well how about you zach yeah i think uh there's a little bit of back and forth tonally um again i meant i already mentioned the the chevy commercial that's really probably my biggest gripe with the movie um i think too that they talk about how much ken is an afterthought um, and it also feels like his resolution is a little bit. I mean, this is a Barbie movie. It's about women and how impossible it is to be a woman. But also, all of Ken's like ballad, like "I Am Ken," and the you know the Grease parody that you're talking about is is about how he feels so much smaller than than Barbie because he feels like that's that's his entire existence. Like he doesn't know who he is except in relation to Barbie, and his relation to Barbie is that he's nothing. Like. 
uh, you know, she, she he just exists to be her her boyfriend, and then that's it. But she doesn't actually like care about him really. That's just how the world is. Uh, and so then his resolution is that he has to realize that he's he actually is a person beyond his relation to Barbie, and like he's she says explicitly to him and to herself in a way like maybe all the things you thought you were aren't actually who you are it's you're just yourself and uh it's a very funny like final sequence for him going through that pain of realizing that stuff and and uh becoming ken but also it does feel a little bit kind of like an afterthought in a sense like it's still it's it's just like a, like you could sum up you could sum it up in in one line of the script is like you know Ken realizes he's enough and that's it mm. and there's some time spent devoted to that but I just feel like if you had done more or maybe you know made that bigger in a way there would be it would be more of a shield from this criticism of like the movies like anti men you know because it's not really like it doesn't say like what's next for him it's just oh you're enough but what is it what does that even mean to be enough as a as a Ken. <laughs> this movie, I have to say, when you're watching it, it's just such a, a wild ride that you kind of get caught up in the colors in the moment. But after watching it, you realize that there are so many more layers to it, like Ken's existential plight and like questions about, well, you know, we don't like being treated that way as women here in the real world. Why is it okay for Ken to be treated that way in Barbie land? You know, I don't know. Just I think that that's that's what's cool about this movie. Yeah. After seeing it a couple days back, you know, it, it's like a Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop. You, you watch it and it's fun and it's cool. But then you go home and you think about it, and you sleep on it and you realize uh, this movie actually is saying some important some important things yeah you just reminded me of something actually and i think it's that um you know as a resolution i think that's fine for ken's character but it's just not really emphasized enough i think the, there's one line where Issa Rae says uh, the, oh basically will ferrell's like okay we're gonna make barbie land back to the way it was like you guys everything's fine you guys are good we'll, we'll put it back the way it was and then Issa Rae's like i don't think it should go back to the way it was like nobody barbie or ken should be in the shadows mm. Uh, and then that's like that's literally it really and then Barbie starts talking to Ruth about you know what's gonna happen with her about Barbie's ending but yeah there's not really like uh, any any emphasis on that it's just like things are better now but it doesn't it's not really doesn't give the audience a, tr- a clear picture of like what better actually is it just says it's better now that's up to us yeah. <laughs> I guess Which that's where that literally then that's when the narrator says that line you know Ken's go on to have the same amount of power as women do in the real world. So, yeah. But uh, other than that, I mean, I, this is an, a great movie, and I have very few complaints. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I think uh, Greta Gerwig is, uh, as we said, three for three. Uh, I think walking out of the theater, we were talking about that between Lady Bird, uh, Little Women, and now this. And it's really, I don't think Lady Bird is so much a movie about uh, women's existence in the world just as much as it is about, you know, one young woman's existence in her world but little women is very much about that and uh, and barbie is too and i think it's it's taken to even another degree of social commentary here uh really well executed and they're all such different movies as well so to be able to get across something significant in all three of these movies told in very different ways is pretty impressive to me go greta we love you yeah she's, she's gonna make a narnia movie next so <laughs> I can't wait to see it. I think they picked the right person for this film, honestly. I, I, I think I, w- I don't know. I can't think of anyone else. I mean, I, n- I never even considered her like 
Yeah. I don't know the right, yeah, the writing, the directing, and like the casting is is impeccable, honestly. Just across the board, the right fit. Yeah. So uh, we didn't really even get into so much. I mean, just a little bit here about the fact that this is a piece of corporate branding too, as much as it, it is subversive in that element. What did you guys think? I, the Chevy part aside, as like a piece of Mattel branding, that you know, I mean, if you go to any store, there's Barbie themed this and Barbie themed that. There's you know, all over social media, everyone showed up in they're like pink cowboy hats and they're you know like all pink outfits uh as a piece of like corporate branding obviously they got the right director for this that was going to be able to work with this material they had margot robbie starring and producing and by all accounts she really stood up for the vision behind this movie when the mattel executives came to set there was a story that there was one particularly offensive scene to mattel that they wanted to have cut from the movie but margot robbie insisted that they perform it for her Mattel and the company ended up letting it stay in the movie um, just the fact of having to be allowed to let something stay in your movie uh, that is so much about you know control and that sort of thing like what, what do we feel about this I thought it was refreshing I mean because you know we, we're all used to these corporate like it's like Marvel like I don't know consumer bonanza movies but they don't usually have such an important message that goes along with it like such a i mean it's it's like a, a hot button you know it's not easy to talk about these things and like kind of bring them out um to where i don't i kept thinking during the movie we went with my son who's 13 years old and i just kept wondering like what is he thinking right now as he's watching this you know yeah let's call him in let's find out <laughs> <laughs> I think as far as like the Mattel, the representation that we get for them, uh, they're not really presented as evil, you know, more it, buffoonish. I think. Yeah, it's yeah. quite it's quite silly. They they almost so, th- you know, the big joke is that Barbie wants to talk to the, the CEO of Mattel and she believes it's a woman and then she shows up there and it's a boardroom full of men deciding, you know, the future of Barbie and all this stuff. Uh, but again yeah they're not really presented as evil they almost operate on like barbie land rules they're like scooby-doo villains it's very cartoonish and there's a whole scooby-doo chase it throughout the mattel building where they're like crashing into each other and not knowing how to operate doors and stuff but even will ferrell whose performance is so lovely in this like he's he's great the little bit that he has but he just really his mannerisms and his delivery are hilarious he he says a line to America Ferrer. He's like, "Tell me your secret dream, child." Or something <laughs> like that. Like it's just, it's so funny. But they're not presented as necessarily like villainous, or it's very. Other than that, they're trying to get Barbie back to Barbie Land and you know out of the real world because it would be disastrous for their bottom line. They're just presented as as capitalists, and I think you know to the average person that's not necessarily like a moral evil. Uh, but they don't. It, even even Will Ferrell um, himself, his character, another executive says like, "Who cares if it's Barbie or Ken? That's popular." Like, because Ken changes Barbie Land, and then in the real world, he becomes the more popular I, doll. I wish they would have explored that a little bit more because it's just kind of like one scene where the yeah, like, it's like a joke. It's almost like a dojo casa house becomes yeah. like the top selling toy in the world, mm-hmm. and they they don't ever get back into like how Barbie world affects, affects the real yeah, world. Yeah. But that was a funny little you just get this snippet. you just get this gag where Will Ferrell's like, okay, if this happens, if like Barbie is allowed to take humans back to the Barbie world, and like she's she's been here, like 
things that we have never even imagined are going to happen. And uh, then it turns out like he's on the phone with this his foreman at the warehouse. He's like, these Casa Do- uh, yeah, Mojo Doja cost houses are selling out. Like it's the most popular tour in the world. Ken's the number one tattoo. Like just these all these all these things that you know Ken has been propelled to stardom in the real world. Uh, and, and then yeah, this other executive, executive number two, says, "Why are we still going to Barbie Land? Like who cares if it's Barbie or Ken? We're making a ton of money." And then Will Ferrell's like shut up. I didn't get into this for a bottom line. Like I got into this because I love little girls and their dreams in the most non creepy way possible. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's like, yeah, they're, they're poking fun at, at, you know, these, these corporations, especially one like Mattel that has a Barbie division. And then the president is a man, but also not really like eviscerating them. They could, they could have be a lot harsh, a lot harsher commentary not only that but they were almost making fun of themselves there were lots of like photo montages of different barbies throughout the years like ridiculous barbies like that um you know stupid barbie i don't know um i I enjoyed that and i don't feel like it was they were trying to sell anything it was almost just like you know this is what happened (laughs) over the decades and i don't know a retrospective yeah, I mean, if you think about it, one of the more prominent uh, Barbie Land characters, uh, played by Michael Sarah, is uh, Alan. an Allen doll, which was like a one-off doll that was supposed to be Ken's buddy. <laughs> and like, I, I read somewhere that uh, I think Greta Gerwig did an interview, and she was saying, "Yeah, when we talked to Mattel, we really wanted to put Alan in," and their response was, "Why do you want to remind people of that? Like, yeah. <laughs> that was a massive <laughs> failure for our company. Why do you want to do that?" Yeah. There's a couple jokes like that where, like, uh, um, when Will Ferrell finally gets to Barbie Land, he sees Midge, which is like this pregnant Barbie, and he's like, "Oh God, I thought we discontinued you." <laughs> and yeah, so there's there's a lot of little gags like that. I thought Michael Sarah was wonderful in this too. So funny. Like, it, you know, Alan is super not well known. I didn't know there was an Alan doll, you know, going into this, but he brings such a life to the characters. Very funny. Yeah. Okay. Well, do we have any last thoughts on the Barbie movie? I think as as many people that can should watch this. Like it's it's a great movie. Um, it is definitely discusses important ideals and like you know themes relevant to to us today, and does it in a way that's like fun and entertaining, um, and n- doesn't necessarily make you feel awful unless you're one of these people who's telling on themselves. So yeah, please everyone uh, watch watch Barbie. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Zach. I I recommend this movie and I also will give you the caveat. You might not you might be like me. You might might not be sold right there when your booty's in your movie chair. But go home and think about it. I think it'll grow on you. It certainly did grow on me. Yeah, I think that's all right. And I think one of the things that we didn't touch on a ton that should be said is that this movie is just a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. It's very funny. It's uh, well paced. The whole thing is just really entertaining. So on top of all the commentary that you're getting, it's just fun. Like you're going to have a good time in the movie theater. So with that, do you guys want to round it up since Cody's not here? Okay. Let a box round up. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, you want to start it off? Four and a half. All right, and Kim, what do you got? I'm going to give it. Can I do like four and a quarter? You can do whatever you want. Not on Letterboxd. Okay, four and a half, four and a half. But in the real world. (laughs) I'm going five stars for the Barbie movie.
Yeah, I, that's uh, I think you've given every Greta Gerwig movie five stars. Uh, that's true. Greta Gerwig. She's the best. All right, guys. Ann Kim has been uh, lovely enough to create a game for us uh, as she steps in just seamlessly to uh, the uh, the Cody production role here of uh, Game Master. Uh, do you want to explain how this is going to work? I would love to explain how this is going to work. This is called Aunt Kim's Barbie Quiz. And I have given each of you a pad of paper and a pen. You will be earning points for correct answers. Oh, God. <laughs> and you each have zero points to start. All right, so are you ready for question number one? Question number one, you will earn a point for the closest answer, and if you hit the answer correctly on the nose, as they say, you will get two points. Question number one, when did Barbie first hit the shelves? In what year? I'm looking for the exact year. I think I got this, yeah. All right. Did they say that in the movie? I don't know. I don't, I don't think know. so. No, I don't think they okay. say it in the movie. I think they might have. But anyway, Zach, what did you say? I have 1967. And Evan? 1956. Evan, you win one point. The yeah. correct oh, so answer I was is 1959. I was a decade ahead. So one <laughs> point for Evan. 1959. Let's go. All right. So that first year, 1959, Mattel sold 300,000 Barbie dolls. How much did the doll cost back then? How much would a new Barbie in 1959 set you back? Dollar amount. If you get it correct, I'll give you two points. Closest answer gets one. All right, Zach. <laughs> I have 89 cents. 89 cents. Evan? I went much higher with uh, $7. Okay. Um, so the annual income back in 1956 or 1959 sorry was about $5,000 a year one Barbie back then cost three dollars so Evan <laughs> oh who wins Evan that busted. I win I have way okay, undervalued okay, I said 89 I'll give, cents I'll give, the point. I'll give the point to Zach are you ready for question number three boys the creator of Barbie her name is Ruth Handler now she named both the iconic doll and Ken after members of her family. Tell me, how were Ken and Barbie related to Ruth? Zach, what did you say? <laughs> okay. So obviously Barbie is her, named after her daughter, Barbara. Yes. And then Ken was the dog. Okay. What did you say, Evan? So I also had daughter for Barbie, uh, and I went nephew for uh, for Ken. That's weird. Ooh, I have to know? give you each half a point because Barbie was indeed Ruth's daughter, but Ken was her son. Da so that's Barbie even weirder. Her. That's even weirder. Isn't it, isn't it weird? Ken and Barbie yeah. are brother and sister. <laughs> so I did read at one point that uh, Barbie and Ken's official like designation relationship to each other has never been de uh, defined by Mattel. They've never officially said that Ken well, is Well, now we boyfriend. know why. <laughs> they actually did break up for a time, and oh. Barbie dated an Australian surfer. Just a little Barbie trivia. It's not going to be on our quiz today. Is that folks, in one sorry. Of the movies? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so 1.5 points for Evan, 1.5 points for Zach. Let's go on to question number four. This is called Spot the Fake Barbie, where I will list four 
Well, everyone knows that Barbie has had hundreds of jobs and careers over the years. Uh, but in this round, I will name four Barbies. Three are real and one is fake. If you correctly ID the fake Barbie, you get a point. All right, so here are your four Barbies. Rocker Barbie. Rapper Barbie. Dolphin Trainer Barbie. And Talk Show Host Barbie. Which is the fake Barbie? All right, Zach, what did you say? So I was torn between talk show host and rapper, but I think rapper is the fake one. Okay, what did you say, Evan? So I just want to take this moment to point out that in our review, we did not talk at all about Sugar's Daddy Ken. Um, <laughs> and that, that is something that I feel we needs discussion. But I also want rapper just because it feels like uh, Mattel could get themselves in some hot water uh, with that type of yeah. Barbie specifically. Well, you are both incorrect. Damn rapper it. Barbie was a real Barbie released in 1992. Just so you know. Okay, so it's the, like vanilla ice Barbie. Yes. Um, the fake Barbie was the TV talk show host Damn Barbie. Damn it. There has been a photojournalist Barbie. Curse my instincts. A news anchor Barbie and a TV news camera woman Barbie, but no talk show, talk show host. Yes. Yeah. All right. Next is a true or false question. The first Barbies only had blonde hair. Is that true or is that false? This is the, the first edition Barbie. The very first Barbies that came out back in 1959, as you will recall. So, what do you say, Zach? True? I have true, yeah. I also went with true. You are both incorrect. <laughs> Come on. The early like a trick. <laughs> uh, the earliest Barbies were available either blonde or brunette. And in 1961, a redhead was added to the lineup. <laughs> now you know. All right, next question. Let's learn a little bit more about our plastic icon. Did you know Barbie has a middle and a last name too? Her full legal name is Barbara Millicent Roberts. And she is from a fictional town called Willows. Willows, like the wind in the mm -hmm. willows. In what very real U.S. state? What state? in our wonderful 50 states plus territory, um, was Barbie born? Zach. <laughs> I mean, this is a good, just, I'm just shooting in the dark here. I have Rhode Island. Rhode Island. Interesting. But no. I like that guess. I went with New Hampshire. Both of you thought she was an East Coast girl. But no, she's from Wisconsin. Willows, Wisconsin. Hmm. Barbie Millicent Roberts. <laughs> Doesn't that sound weird? Roberts? I would have never guessed that that was her last name. But speaking of last names. I would have names, said Handler after watching the movie. Right. Ken has a last name too. And I'm going to give you three options. You have to decide which is Ken's real last name. Is it Thomas, Carson, or Stevens? What did you say, Zach? Thomas. Thomas. Ken Thomas. That sounds... Sounds like it should be Richards. <laughs> but I went with Stevens. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. You guys um, are both wrong again. Oh my it's God. Carson. <laughs> I don't think, no one's got Ken a question Carson. right. Ken Carson. No yeah. one's got a question right in so long. <laughs> I know. You both have one and a half points. Okay. So you have, you have, okay, it's time for another spot, the fake Barbie. Awesome. All right. So here we go. F I'm going to list four Barbies. You tell me which one's not a real one. French language teacher Barbie. Major League Baseball Barbie, Totally Stylin' Tattoos Barbie, or Jewel Girl Barbie? 
French language teacher, Major League Baseball, totally styling tattoos, or jewel girl? Zach, what did you say? Uh, French language teacher. Okay, and Evan? I had MLB, but I actually changed it to French language teacher as well. <laughs> well, good, <Wow>. because <clears throat> French language teacher Barbie is the fake Barbie. Yeah. But there was an English language teacher Barbie in 2017 and a Spanish language teacher Barbie in 2000. So I thought I could probably... Oh, there was even a sign language teacher Barbie. That's I cool. thought I could slip that one in and get you, but you both earned a point. All right, you have two more. Speaking of totally styling tattoos, Barbie... This was a Harley Davidson theme doll that sported a tattoo on her blank. Named the body part correctly for one point. Come on. What did you say, Zach? Lower back. <laughs> but maybe I, I went upper arm. Maybe like All right. I will give the deltoid. point to Zach. It's not the lower back. It's, it was actually a gigantic tattoo on her back. Which got lots of complaints from parents. Oh, I'm sure. So Mattel <laughs> discontinued that one. So Zach. Yes. You have three and a half points to Evans two and a half. This is our final round. Beat that, Ken. How many sisters does Barbie have? We're talking animated universe or? This is Barbie history. You should know this. <laughs> or guess. How many sisters do you think she has? Zach, what's your number? Okay, so I have I have two numbers. Oh. One is two, I think, and then the other one is nine because I don't know if the mermaid power sisters count. <laughs> Thank you. I I appreciate that. Um, yeah, clarity. Okay, now what did you say, Evan? You know, I have no idea. I just went with one because I know of Skipper. <laughs> okay, Skipper's so the babysitter. Her sister's name is Stacy. Oh my God, she has three sisters: oh. Stacy, Skipper. And Chelsea. Oh, I didn't know Skipper was her actually her sister. Skipper yeah. was her sister. All right, so um, we're both wrong. Zach, you are the winner today. Congratulations, <laughs> you win our three and a half out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Aunt Kim Barbie quiz. Hey, we would have done way better on the Ken quiz. Just saying. <laughs> Thank you for that. Somehow quiz. I know that. That was fun. <laughs> Alright guys, we are going to close out today with the other half of Barbenheimer, and that is Oppenheimer. Uh, Aunt Kim, I know you haven't seen this movie, but you're welcome to uh, stick with us if you have anything to chime in. Uh, but to lead off, Zach, what is Oppenheimer? Well, it's much more dour than Barbie. Um, much more? Yes, <laughs> quite a bit more. Uh, so Oppenheimer is the story of uh, Robert Oppenheimer, um, of course, director of the Manhattan Project. It's very much a, a character study a biopic um, about his life, you know, just before he became the director of, of the project and then through the project and the aftermath. Um, and it very much follows his experiences and how he has, you know, reacted to becoming the father of the atom bomb uh, and, you know, kind of who he was as he was going through all of these things. Um, that, that, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's as, as much of a biopic as you can get, really. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is that in very Nolan-esque fashion, there is also this second storyline going on that takes place, you know, years ahead 
of uh, you know the events of the Manhattan Project and and the early life of uh, Oppenheimer. That is the Senate confirmation hearings of a man named Louis Strauss, who uh, you know had his run-ins with Oppenheimer in the past, uh, but is now going to become the secretary of commerce. commerce or something yeah yeah well and that i mean that's what i mean by like aftermath right like that that takes place all, after all, all of this uh... it does but it is set up as sort of a different storyline entirely as like right. uh you know the there are this movie is bifurcated uh very specifically into a black yeah. and white and a He's color kind of, portion it's kind of ripping off uh, greta gerwig a little bit always in, who is isn't his, these uh, days the way she color grades Little Women is, is kind of how this movie is color graded as well, except black and white versus color. Right, the past versus the future. Nolan has said that it is objective truth is in black and white, and maybe that's because that part of the story takes place during uh, Senate confirmation yeah. hearing. So that is all under oath, and those stories are supposedly true. And then the color portion is the biopic part. You know, it is Robert Oppenheimer's life. Uh, there are a lot of gaps in there he is filling in with you know educated guesses or suppositions about his experience in his love life and what happened under the uh, secrecy of the project at los alamos so there is a lot of guesswork going on there but that is the more traditional biopic piece set apart from this you know information we have from a, a senate hearing mm-hmm. more or less what did you think of uh, oppenheimer zach I quite liked it. I mean, um, it's a very, very, uh, you know, technically impressive film, as most of Nolan's works are. You know, he's very much uh, an auteur and likes to have these kind of, um, you know, big, powerful cinematography and the way he maneuvers the camera, even just like in wide shots or mediums and close-ups. Like, he is a very specific vision, and I think, you know, he's known to be... Uh, he's known to execute his his visions well. And I think that that rings true here. You know, the movie, this movie looks incredible, um, all the way through. Uh, and as much as it is mostly focused on men in rooms talking, I think for the most part, what they're saying is uh, interesting and does kind of you know reveal a, a lot about who Oppenheimer was and um as much as we can speculatively and i think it's it's largely successful there are some things that you know of course didn't resonate with me but for the most part as i was watching the movie i was entertained and i thought like this is pretty good yeah i think what you say about nolan is interesting because i know i've always been lower on christopher nolan as a director than you have and most people have i think he uh kind of has two sorts of movies from what i can tell uh, one of those is, you know, a historical drama kind of thing. I'm thinking of like a Dunkirk type of deal. Batman. And Batman, I guess, <laughs> you know. The, no, but like that is more, you know, grounded in a person's story or in a, in a historical event. And then he's got the sci-fi kind of thing too. You know, he likes to do, he did Inception, he did Interstellar and all of these movies that are trying to make you think about just how the process of the world is working, even just within the context of his movie. And Oppenheimer kind of hits that juncture almost on the head. It's a historical biopic, but it's also about the inventor of the atom bomb. So it gets that sort of like sci-fi as history element that he really enjoys. 
and I think that suits him pretty well. I will say my biggest problem with the movie is the Senate confirmation hearing bit that doesn't necessarily tie back into the movie cleanly or as cleanly as i would like i kind of agree there yeah and and the problem is that it feels like a nolan movie in the fact that every nolan movie feels like it's trying to he's not quite as bad as like m night Shyamalan in this effect but there has to be some twist there has to be something for you to figure out and there has to be some villain or some ulterior motive that you as the audience can figure out but maybe didn't and in this movie that's what this is is like this lewis strauss character has been undermining oppenheimer from you know fairly early in the, in the story of um the, the biopic part of this and to me it just felt like all right we had to have some sort of mystery some question mark about a person that we know a lot about just based on history and that kind of bothered me a little bit too because i think the the biopic part is so strong I really don't care about Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Strauss and uh, his confirmation hearing almost at all. That's interesting. I guess, I don't know, maybe it's my own personal bias as like a viewer um, or just, you know, the under, uh, more of a, an understanding of like filmic language. I think from the beginning, it's quite obvious that Oppenheimer didn't leak information yeah, of to, course. The, to the Russians, right? Um He's he's posed as a horrific centrist the entire movie. Like, why is he going to give one side an advantage? Oh, over I kind of disagree to that like, reading. I, I really, I mean, you know, every time he's asked to actually take a stand on something, he's plays like, oh, you know, it's not my place to take a stand. Like, I'm I'm looking at the science. It's not, you know, <laughs> it's not economically viable or it's a waste of our time. Until finally, after uh, he actually does invent the atom bomb so to speak and then it's used in uh as an act of war <clears throat> not only uh, it's o- only after that after he sees the understands the the destruction and uh, exactly what happened to the victims of those bombings does he finally start taking an advocate for you know disarmament and you know n- no longer no more research into uh, atomic bombs and specifically the hydrogen bomb but before that, even though he had communist leanings and sympathies because of his brother and maybe even his own political beliefs, the entire movie, everyone everyone's asking him to do something, to say something, to be a part of this this movement, and he he waves his hand at them like I'm not, you know, uh, that's not my place. And so I think that from the beginning, it's it's it was very clear to me that his uh, his loyalty or you know whether he was guilty of this crime he was accused of or not it was that he wasn't yeah i think i agree with that that i don't think it ever portrayed him as the type of person that would betray his own country or anything like that but i do think that early in the movie you do get a strong sense of his political leanings he is hosting uh unionizing drives at the campus that he works at despite the fact that he's been told multiple times by his uh, director or his uh, supervisor at, at the university that that's not okay that he needs to keep it out of the classroom he keeps pushing for that well, i think that's just I'm, his colleague you're talking about josh hartnett's character right yeah, yeah. He's, he doesn't have any like supervisor no, or no sort of power over he's him. Just, it's literally just his colleague and he's sure he's saying that he's uh basically like uh you know right kneecapping himself by allowing that kind of discussion and stuff right and i think it's not until though that he gets this opportunity to work on the manhattan project a project that is worthy of the genius that he's presented as 
that he starts to back away and and form this sort of like mushy middle area for himself where he has cut off ties with his former communist buddies and but not really and then you know he's not really quite on board with using the weapon that he's building in the way that people want to or expanding upon it he sort of convinced himself that continuing to build this weapon that he knows will be massively destructive uh and deadly for a large number of people he's convinced himself that it is in the best interest of future safety and and avoidance of war and and finding a place to use his genius but also kind of absolve himself of the guilt of it like i think that does come in the middle but i do think at the beginning this is very much a movie that is about the mental change of a man and part of that is killian murphy's performance as oppenheimer is you see him as sort of maybe not a wide-eyed idealist but somebody that is certainly involved in the spanish civil war someone that is involved in uh he's going to all of these like communist party meetings even though he never joins the party and then that sort of gets stripped away from him bit by bit as he becomes more engulfed in the science and in the uh the building of this uh, of the atomic bomb and i do think that that change is what is part of uh the interesting bit of this movie like i think that's what i really enjoyed in this movie is watching how power and uh influence and just geopolitics has like degraded this person's whole being yeah i so i i agree that that's kind of the uh the overall arc of the character is he finally decides to to stand up for something that you know he genuinely believes in in the whole time throughout the development of of uh, you know the Manha- the Manhattan project he he had always said like he he's only creating it he, he's only working on this because he thinks that it will actually create some kind of security later and that he is hoping that there's no intention of actually using it. It's literally just to beat the Nazis because if the Nazis get it first, then everyone's kind of fucked. But if we get it first, then at least we can go to them and say, we have this before you. Stop doing what you're doing. So, you know, as a, as a way of, of, of uh, creating an opportunity for diplomacy, which, of course, we all know as the audience that that's not what happened. <laughs> um, and that things only got worse because then... Uh, of course, there was a spy at at uh, at Los Alamos that leaked a lot of information to the Russians about the development of the of the bomb, and then they started their own nuclear program and armament testing and all of that. And now we are in the world that we live in currently, which ourselves and Russia have the largest stockpile of nukes ever in creation. You know, much larger than any other countries in the world, and so he he is this kind of disillusioned person, but it takes seeing the destruction and uh Mm -hmm. the power of what he's created for him to finally say this is not good like you know i'm gonna firmly state my beliefs but i think it is it is purposeful that the rest of the film he is really anti stating his position even he even though he does go to those meetings um and he does allow the you know the students to have their to host their union talks and organization in his classroom he very firmly says like he's not a part of it even when his colleague is confronting mm-hmm. him saying like you can't be doing this he's like why i, I the students organize it i'm just letting them use the space like yeah. I, I don't care either way and you know which is obviously not true i would think you yeah. you know he he obviously if he 
was anti-union, he probably wouldn't let them use the space. But sure. he also always says like he's he puts he keeps that stuff at an arm's length. You know, he presents himself as anti-political and like uh, and more interested in just being educated, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's why he he reads uh, in all these languages and yeah, yeah, and and Marx. You know, he has Marxist literature and all this stuff. But he he always just says like, look, I'm just I like ideas and I like being presented with ideas and you know, making my own conclusions from there. But he never says, like, I firmly believe in, you know, Communist Party and all all this stuff. Like, well, sure. So I, th- I think that, yeah, that, I mean, that's definitely his arc is going from that kind of person to firmly saying, like, you know, this is what I believe in. And then being punished for that, especially because uh, he humiliated uh, – Right, he got Albert Einstein to be rude to Louis uh, <laughs> Strauss. Yeah. It's like the whole rec- like not that, the yeah, whole that thing. That is such a weird linchpin to have that conflict. But on. yeah, he's like, oh, Einstein didn't say anything to me as he passed me by the pond, and now I'm gonna ruin this guy's whole life. Yeah, <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. Yeah, um, I do think that Nolan does. So I want to talk a little bit about what Nolan does with this movie. Aside from that, even just the the part that I enjoyed more. I think it's interesting that he added a lot of, I don't know if you would go so far as call them like fantastical elements. There are a lot of little um, interstitions of, you know, atoms flying around in the air. And uh, later on in the movie, there are kind of like these visions that Oppenheimer is having. Mm -hmm. One of them takes place during uh, a scene where he is back with like an ex-girlfriend that was impactful on his life. There is another sequence where he is, the, the camera is literally shaking around him, and a blinding white light kind of surrounds him as a, a, almost imitating an atomic bomb. And he's seeing the faces of the people around him like melting off and stepping into like a, a disintegrating body. And like the horrors of what he has created and what it has caused are catching up to him. And the realization comes in the form of this like sort of haunting nightmare. I think that is really an interesting thing and it elevates it from just a biopic to something that is more dramatic and more uh, suitable of the form of just film in general like I think a lot of times biopics just tell you a story you could read on a page but this gives some yeah artistry or or, or visceralness to the experience of of watching a story I wish you would have used it more that is that is one of the better underused that is one of the better scenes too I think uh this is this is after um, the bomb has been dropped in uh, Hiroshima, mm-hmm. and they have heard the announcement over the radio in Los Alamos, and you know he they have this it's a celebration basically. Yeah, he's asked but, to give like a victory speech. Yeah, the whole movie um, you keep hearing this sound. It sounds almost like uh, it has always reminded me because it's in the trailers too. It's very prevalent in the trailers. It, it has always reminded me of like a, a railroad car starting up, like mm-hmm. the. Boom, boom like that kind of sound and you don't know what it is until you reach that point in the movie and you realize it's everyone's like stomping their feet in this wooden amphitheater and it's creating this rhythm of you know these people are excited and they're celebrating and it's this absolute moment of just utter horror for Oppenheimer who's kind of in present in two places at once where he realizes you know who he's supposed to be for these people because he's been a leader for them and he's the whole reason that everyone is there and work that has worked on this project and the the absolute like horror of the use of his creation, you know, of what they have developed, 
and what those people have experienced. And yeah, it's very much rooted in, you know, a lot of accounts of the people who were there mm-hmm. um, when it happened and like what they saw, what they experienced. Uh, the, the, the ash, like bodies made of ash, like frozen in time. And the, you mm-hmm. know, people who you go instantly blind if you witness a nuclear flash like that, like all of that is, all of that is present in that moment. And I definitely do think that that's one of the most powerful sequences in the movie. Um, and I, I also think that that's kind of where it, it starts to falter for me a little bit is because you have this whole buildup through the Manhattan project and Oppenheimer's life and these different things have happened. And while you're learning this stuff, it's also cut in between an, a hearing like a disciplinary, not disciplinary hearing. It, it's a security hearing for his right. His clearance. Yeah. And they're talking about these events and stuff like that. And so after this, after that, after that happens, um, the rest of the movie is about the outcome of this hearing and then the outcome of the Senate hearing. Yep. And really it's just a huge drop off from like the atomic bomb to like, is he going to get his security clearance back? <laughs> the stakes and are very is, different. <laughs> yeah. And is Robert Downey Jr. going to be, you know, the secretary of commerce. And while I think that, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is giving a very good performance and that's, mm-hmm. there are still some interesting things. It's very much like it feels like the movie ended before it's actually ended, you know, Right, and it's very funny because the movie seems to recognize this as well in that in the beginning you do get a lot of cuts between the security hearing, the Senate confirmation, and the early life of Oppenheimer. But once you get to Los Alamos and you actually get to the point where the bomb is almost complete and they're testing it, like the meat of the biopic, like the why everybody came to see Oppenheimer, they stop. They stop going from scene to scene. They just stick to this story of what is going on and what is interesting about this movie. And it carries through for almost the middle hour of the movie is just this sequence at Los Alamos uninterrupted, uh, building up to the test of this, uh, this first nuclear test that they do. And it's captivating. And then, like you said, it ends, that happens. He gives that speech. It's you're dealing with the fallout, the consequences a little bit. And then it just goes right back to, all right, now some, now we're going to have some hearings again. And it is like, all right, the last, you know, 45 minutes of this movie is kind of a drag in relation to what you just experienced as a as a viewer. Yeah, I think, you know, uh after so it's like that the the Hitchcock thing where it's like show them the bomb under the table. The bomb's already gone off. Right. Literally. Yeah, exactly. And we're still learning about the the rest is more about Oppenheimer's resolution as a character and like what, you know, telling us what happened afterwards and and uh, the outcome of the of, of the Senate hearing, um, I think they could have probably done a little bit of a better job rearranging some of that stuff, especially because it's really weird. What ha- what happens is basically, uh, as you mentioned, Strauss has a grudge against Oppenheimer because um, after it was either during the development of of this bomb or just afterwards, the United States was engaged in selling nuclear fissile materials to mm-hmm. other countries. And uh, Oppenheimer was like arguing against it or, or, or for it. I can't remember. I think remember. he was arguing for it. Yeah, 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 I think you might be right because he was making a joke about how we use everything to build bombs or like, you know, it, right. do you like beer because you use it building a nuclear bomb or something like that. I can't remember. But right. Yeah. It was so, a good joke. Anyways, he, he <laughs> uh, you know, uh, completely eviscerates and embarrasses Strauss, his position about, about selling those fissile materials. So he's holding this grudge. And then it seems like 
you know, he's going to get confirmed. And the hearing that he was going through, that Oppenheimer was going through, uh, was very clearly a predetermined outcome and is explicitly stated that, you know, it was rigged to rid him of his clearance so he could no longer work in the nuclear theater. But not even just that. So it would take away his influence as well. So that way, like, yeah, his because, legitimacy because point, would be Yeah, his lost. credibility would be destroyed. Right. Because at that point, he was very much, like, anti-nuclear development and disarmament and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like, treaties stating that, you know, no one would no one would further build any weapons like this. Um, so, yeah, that he was sought, be sought out to destroy him and effectively did so. But then at the last minute, you think that, you know, his him and his uh, lawyers who are helping him with the Senate hearings are saying, like, oh, we have these two other scientists testifying. It's in the bag. You yeah. Know, they're just being hard on you because they have to look good saying, like, Oppenheimer was a communist and it looks questionable or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then Hill, played by Rami Malek, uh, and a scientist who was part of the project. Very minuscule role, too. Yeah, I mean, not mo- the ensemble enough. is very big, so not a lot of the other scientists get get very much screen time. I think Benny Safdie is one that gets a lot. And, yeah. Uh, and then you have, of course, Groves, the the colonel. Matt Damon, yeah. who is, a, you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but very hammy all the way. Yeah. I oh. mean, that's what we love about Matt Damon. Right. He's doing his Matt Damon thing. But, uh, but anyway, so it's – and then at the last moment, a scientist comes on because all the previous scientists more or less have been saying that they'd always doubted Oppenheimer's kind of – Mm-hmm. loyalty and he had he, these strange convictions and he ran Los Alamos in a weird way. It was almost like an ego trip for him, this kind of thing. But then the last minute you have Hill come on and completely reverses that testimony saying that there's evidence and that, you know, the entire psych- scientific community is still behind Oppenheimer uh, and that it's Strauss who's the one that's like the manipulator and, you know, basically yeah. did a hatchet job against him. And you don't really see that – set up in any way it just kind of comes out of nowhere yeah, oppenheimer in the course of the movie meets hill twice something like that yeah like, speaks to him face to face because he's in yeah. one of the remote labs i think the way right. that they set it up there's like the four corners of america and then los alamos is in the middle and they're doing this compartmentalization thing uh so yeah he, rami malik's only in the movie for a couple of scenes and then he does this final testimony there are some scientists, and of course Groves, who testify in the actual hearing and say like his character's fine, like he's a good person. You know, he would never betray the United States. Right. But the movie, you know, basically tells you this Senate hearing is in all all but a formality, right? And then at the last second, it's like, oh, actually, the scientific community loves Oppenheimer, and we 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 see what Strauss has been doing the whole time, which is sure. very much what has shown the opposite. Like you know, so. I think that that also serves to detract from that finale a little bit. I agree. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's especially, you know, the first half of this episode being Barbie. It is important for us to say that Nolan still, how many movies has he made? Like 10, something like that? Still has no idea what to do with female characters. He has no idea how to use Emily Blunt in this movie. Her character is so wildly underwritten. She has one very, very powerful scene that she delivers brilliantly um, in the security hearing. Uh, really, just one of the best scenes of the movie is her sort of fighting back on the behalf of her husband. And, and you see sort of the pain that's caused uh, to her over the course of the movie by Oppenheimer's infidelity and you know connections back to his past. Um, but that's mostly just shown by her like being drunk in a bunch of scenes, and like really, this movie has no idea how to use her. Florence Pugh uh, similarly is in the movie. She's an interesting character, 
as um, Oppenheimer's like first true love, but doesn't really you don't get a sense of who she is as a person uh, as much as you do as even some of the you know smaller male roles that just populate Los Alamos. So I, I found that to be kind of problematic, just in the sense that you know like Emily Blunt is second build in this movie. And has almost nothing to do for almost the entire runtime. I am certain that she's going to get a supporting actress nom for this movie, just for that one for scene, that scene, basically. Alone. Yeah. Um. No, no. So uh, my aunt just uh, asked uh, the scene where she's drunk. No, there's a scene in the um, security clearance hearing uh, where basically all these character witnesses are brought in to defend Oppenheimer or attack him one way or the other, and she gets called. And at first, she's kind of faltering a little bit, having a hard time. But then she sort of like flips a switch and just makes the interviewer, the the prosecutor, very, look like an idiot. Like, like it's very much like Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny, where there's this slimy prosecutor who's trying to get her to slip up, or you know, gives her trick questions, and then she's just like, I don't know how to answer that, and he's like, Yeah, because you can't answer, and he's and she's like, Well, no one can answer it because it's a trick question. Right. It's very much that exact <laughs> thing, like where yeah. she's like. The it's only, very well done. He's like, the only reason you're saying that is because of this and this and this. And then he's like, oh, so you don't remember, you know, this was only this many years ago and you don't remember. And she's like, well, actually it was this many years ago. And then he, and then he has to like look at his notes and stuff. And so, yeah, very much gives her this, this scene of like agency and power. But I, I also disagree that, that that's the only scene where she's given that. Like it's, it's made very clear that um, she understands uh Oppenheimer as a person and even though even though you know he's not the best husband to her certainly like no one would say right, that of course she still stands by him and uh, you know continues to to be by his side they even have more kids and um respects his genius i guess i don't know she has her reasons right and that's i think that's yeah. portrayed there and she also very much cares about the like the outcome of his life and their lives and she is portrayed as completely understanding what's happening in every situation she's not stupid um and even though she is like is using alcohol to deal with you know whatever emotional problems she's having about a given situation she knows what's going on and why it's happening and understands people's motivations clearer than even Oppenheimer himself sometimes yeah that that, that's fair and she is the one in the room telling the lawyers like why is no one looking at Strauss? Because he sets it up in a way that he's not involved in the hearing. He's right. he's recused himself basically, but the breadcrumbs are there, and she's like, "We know it's him. It's it's him. It's been him the whole time. Like from the moment that he's come into our lives, like he, there's been a problem. Like why is no one doing anything about this?" And criticizes Oppenheimer himself for again having that centrist position of like, I- "I'm just a little guy here, you know." Like I, I'm. <laughs> And he I'm, is a little guy. I, you know, I'm not on one side or the other. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm on the side of science. Like, and she's like, stop, stop being a martyr. You know, it's not getting us anywhere. We understand what's going on. Like, why, why won't you fight? And I think that is what also bothers me a little bit about the Hill testimony is that it just kind of makes him right. There's yeah. one line where he says, oh, I have my reasons, which is meant to imply, I think that, you know, he understands that his fellow scientists are behind him while the audience has shown no evidence of that right. other than only his closest friends who, you know, Josh Hartnett doesn't, doesn't testify for or against. And then you have Matthew Modine who comes back and says like, this is ridiculous and, you know, Groves himself. But 
literally nobody else there's no he's not shown developing actual relationships with these people maybe that's the biggest issue right is yeah. that he has all these connections he has all these friends these relationships and i guess maybe the distinction between emily blunt's character specifically is that when you see him entering into this relationship with florence Pugh's character early in the movie you see the sort of attraction between the two they're intellectual equals sort of at this party that they meet and they are having a discussion about these things later on when uh when emily blunt shows up essentially they're just together and there's not really they go to new mexico at one point and like have a a trip together but there's never really a moment where you feel like oh this is what these two see in each other this is why Oppenheimer has pursued something like this you never really get that perspective from Emily Blunt's character either she's never really given her own sense of agency I feel like in that uh, you know you develop what her perspective is you are she's definitely seen as capable and understanding of what's happening but you never really get her perspective of how things are going other than no. that she suspects Strauss. Oppenheimer's literally the only point of view character other than Robert Downey Jr. Right. And then, like you said, even Oppenheimer, you don't necessarily get the rationale behind his point of view either. You just kind of yeah. get the, the, the world as told I, as him as the main you know, character. The movie, the runtime goes, is it over three hours or near it's three cl- hours? It's close it's, to it's it. maybe three hours on the dot. But yeah. basically, there's, you know, there's a lot. This movie's very dense. And so a lot of stuff is kind of glossed over or implied uh, through filmic language or, or single lines of dialogue. Right. There's, a, there's a, a very clear there's there's like three affairs in this movie. One, uh, he meets Emily Blunt when she's already married and clearly like a neglected right. housewife. And so that's why they go on the trip is because he invites her and her husband to go to New Mexico to visit his brother on his ranch. And then they all go, and then he—that's when their relationship develops. And then while he's in in that marriage, he sees Florence Pugh again because right. that's someone that he had a relationship with before, and has an affair, a one night thing with her before she's either she killed herself or was executed. Right. It's not clear. That's also something that's kind of like ambiguous, which I guess is true in real life too. No one knows exactly. It, it whether. seems like it's more. I, I was reading about this too. It seems like it's more likely that she killed herself, but uh, there has been speculation from people that she was killed and then after that after he's had this horrific realization too that that uh he feels like he failed her because she did kill herself and he has this this moment with emily blunt where he's sobbing and she's like listen don't make us feel bad for the consequences of your own actions like you did you did it live with it and get yourself to fucking together because you need to finish this and after that he then has an affair with another scientist's right. wife, and it's not like it's this is that's one that's not explicitly portrayed. It's barely a plot point. Like, yeah, it's, you know? it's not. You know, there's a couple of moments. There's this very brief exchanges that are you know, in, uh, right. weighed down with the amount of subtext, and then it's there's one confirmation later, and it's a joke where he's like, "That's crazy. He never found out." You know what I mean? <laughs> and. So and he's lucky that guy was dead at because right. at that point that's when that's when the Senate hearing was happening and like all this stuff like so not the greatest guy and sure. it's, it's just it, he says to uh his lawyer or to I can't remember who it is that he's talking to but he says to him he's like you know don't presume to like judge our relationship like you understand I think it's his lawyer cuz he's mm-hmm. questioning allowing Emily Blunt to go on the stand and sit and he's like are you sure she's up for this and he's like 
you don't fucking know her. Like, you know, like this is right. our, we, you look at us and think you understand our relationship, but you don't like, we know, we know each other. We've been together for this many years. Like our vices and things aside, there's a reason we're still together. Sure. And so, and Emily Blunt expresses something similar and she really, when they, on that initial New Mexico trip, she explains, you know, that she was in love with someone. He went and got himself killed in the war and then she just fell into the next relationship and now she's using this one to like escape and then they get married because she gets pregnant. So she, I, right. I imagine that she feels subject to the societal norms of the time and like, you know, what it, what it was to be a woman then. And I think that to say that she doesn't have anything going on or isn't, isn't, I mean, she is probably not fleshed out enough, but I think it's a little reductive to say that there's nothing there. I don't know. Other than that one scene. Because that description you just said, like you said, you have to imagine that she is subject to these things, right? The movie does leave you to imagine with her character in a way that it doesn't with some of the male characters. And I I think that comes back down to Nolan's, and this has been a constant thing for him in movies like his that's true i won't defend yeah, I right won't defend like it's, him, it's uh, not like it's just this movie and, yeah. and i think that this movie falls prey to it i don't think it's like a death blow necessarily to the film itself it's not even the you know the most i don't know the part that brings me out of the movie the most which is all the straw stuff but i do think it's worth mentioning at least yeah no emily blunt acting on for sure she she was good in the in the parts that she was given i just i, I don't see her not clearing the field yeah i mean we'll, we'll see i don't know about a win obviously i mean we're not even all the way through the year yet but definitely definitely i mean i think i think that this movie is going to be nominated for a lot i think this is very Basically much the all yeah. quiet on the western front of of this coming year you know especially actually one of the best parts of the movie other than um the cinematography is the sound design i think the sound design of this movie is on another level yeah it's gonna win a lot of technical awards for sure uh and it'll be nominated for everything i'm i'm sure of it uh i don't know we've we went on a long time about the that emily blunt thing but uh, is there anything else uh that you want to talk about just with regards to the movie i i've been critical of it here but i do think it's a good movie like i do think that uh especially like i said the parts uh, the color part that is um i think it's titled fisher um, mm. which is basically the straight biopic part, yeah, is a lot stronger than the other part. And I think that part to me is like about as well done a biopic as you can make. Uh, if it weren't for all the other stuff, this would be a higher rated movie for me. But I, I did enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah, I think that I think that happens a lot in conversations between us is that a lot of stuff is just given like this was good about it. Mm-hmm. And we talk about, you know, things that are interesting for us to dissect or things that we hung up on where it was like that took us out of the movie or, you know, that didn't sit right with us. And so we kind of let the good things kind of fall by the wayside because that's right. much less interesting to talk about. Like, hey, do you think that was good? Yeah, sure. I did. <laughs> uh, but no, Oppenheimer is a very good movie. If you can stomach three hours, you should, I think. Um, especially if, you, you know, anyone who's a Nolan fan has probably already seen it at this point. But definitely... Uh, Kelly Murphy's performance is really good too. Agreed. And, uh, Matt Damon is doing his thing. He's doing um, a thing. We love Matt Damon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a very good movie uh, across the board. A lot of it's doing a lot of things very well. Um, and you know, whatever criticisms we have, I don't think it detracts from the overall production value and like just value of the movie in general. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, so with that, we've gone a while on this, so why don't we round it up? Letterboxd Roundup. <laughs> Thank you again, uh, and Kim, for that. Uh, I have a solid four. I do as well. Four, but I got to say half a star of that might just be for um, that portrayal of uh, President Harry Truman as a complete oh, yeah. idiot. <laughs> Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman yeah, is, doing as, a cameo. as Truman yeah. just being like, oh, I was the one that did this. And yeah, like just no one cares about you. Really yeah. idiotic, uh, but very funny portrayal. All right. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Spinning the Reel. Uh, this is where we normally plug things, so I will uh, cede the floor here to my Aunt Kim. Is there anything you want to plug, anything you want to tell anyone? There's this great podcast that I love listening to called Spinning the Reel. You guys should check <laughs> okay, it out. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great place to find Aunt Kim. She was on the uh, episode last season, Where the Crawdads Sing. So if you haven't listened to that one, you should definitely check it out. She... Uh, was wonderful on it and gave a, a great crawdad quiz. Jack, <laughs> where can the people yeah, find you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, as always, you can find me on Letterbox at painted underscore dog, uh, and then spinning the real r e e l dot com for yes. all of our wonderful reviews. If I ever write another review, it will be there. And links to all our shows. Yep. In the meantime, you can find me at Evan D twenty six. In the meantime, Cody, we miss you. If you got this far in the podcast. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Thanks, Aunt Kim, for uh, for joining in. Love you guys. See you next year. Bye, Barbie.